blood? Does it really bother you? Okay, Nelson's willing to fess up straight away. Okay, Stuart as well. Okay, David, yeah, we've got a few here. Uh, others may be afraid to, to let it be known, but uh, I think there are many of us who at least don't enjoy it. Who does enjoy it? I, I would have to suggest you get some counsel if you enjoy it. Um, I know that at least in earlier years, um, our Emily, um, so off-put by it, that even the very word, just the speaking of the word blood would cause her to cringe and want to leave the room. So I know that it is a serious thing. Well, why is it? Why is this a thing that just grips us in this way that's so unique, that's so, so different? Um, why is it feature so much in so many movies today? Um, is there some sort of a defiance in that? I don't know, but there is something very significant about it, and it is not a coincidence. God has actually assigned significance to blood, as we will see in our study as we continue in, in Leviticus today. God says something very specific about it that is perhaps at the root of of strong impulse, this reaction that have a response to it. So we're going to look at that today as we look at Leviticus chapter 17. The last time we were in Leviticus, we did the first, uh, we looked at the first nine verses, 17. And there we saw uh, reference to blood being shed, but the focus was on the place of sacrifices. God was instructing his people Israel. He, he was particularly guarding them against idolatry. Because the temptation was to offer sacrifices out in other places and, and to follow the practices of the pagans around them and offer these up, particularly popular in that area, I guess, at the time, were the um, goat gods. Uh, and the Bible refers to demons because that is what's behind false religion. And so uh, God was warning them. He was helping... Uh, put a barrier there so that they wouldn't be tempted even to offer these sacrifices to false gods. And so he instructed them that they were to bring all of their offerings, their sacrifices, to the tabernacle. And eventually that would apply to the temples, Jerusalem. Because the blood of this sacrificial animal was to be filled out at the altar and offered up to God. So in essence, God said that the blood was his. There's reason for that. We're going to see more of that as we continue now, picking up in verse 10. So I invite you to have your own copy of Scripture. Uh, I have a lot of Scripture uh, text today, so I didn't attempt to put it all into slides. So I invite you to have your own copy of Scripture, and it's good for you to know your way around God's Word. If you have any trouble at all, it um, up to somebody who looks like they know what to look on with them. Don't be shy. Leviticus chapter 17, I'm going to read these verses first, and then we'll make our observation passage. Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 16. It just continues on from the previous portion. It says, If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Notice it's God speaking. First person. I will set my face against A reason, a rationale for this strong statement. Verse 11, 4. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And 
I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Interesting passage, but very direct command. In fact, the language that's used here when God says, um, no one shall, is the same kind of uh, same verb and grammatical structure that it's used in the Ten Commandments, where God says, thou shalt not. So it is absolute affirmative command. So let's, have, let's just have a look at this. First of all, we see the sanctity of blood for Old Testament Israel in this passage. We're going to contrast that as we look at the New Testament. But the sanctity of blood for Old Testament Israel we see in these verses. First of all, a taking notes. No one in Israel's company was to consume blood. Two reasons. Now, I say no one in Israel's company because you see very clearly here, God says, even those who sojourn amongst you. that God is so um, committed to the people of Israel for their whole community, everyone in and amongst them, to live according to this code, that he makes it explicit. This doesn't only apply to people who are of Jewish heritage, but the people of other nations who have joined with them, who have accepted the worship of the one true and living God. He's saying this is not just a Jewish rule. This is a rule for everybody in your community. So he's quite clear about that. Now, the two reasons that are given, hopefully you picked them up as as you observed the text for yourself as we read. But they are, first of all, that blood is vital to life, and considered sacred by God as the symbol of the life. Now, how many times does God say that in this very short passage? You see it over and over again, don't you? Verse 11, uh, the first part of verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. You come to verse uh, 14, the second part of that. Well, he says at the beginning of verse 14, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So there he kind of says it, two times, just kind of flipping it around grammatically, just to make sure nobody missed the point, right? And then at the end of the verse there, the life of every creature is its blood. So this is significantly significant according to God. Now, there are different things, obviously, that can cause a life to end, right? But the loss of blood is certainly a guarantee, and the blood is the thing that courses through every part of a living body. It's vital to the whole body. In fact, you know, you could, if you, if you lose blood flow even to one part of that body for a long enough time, that part of the body will die, right? So it, this is, God has designed things this way, and he is speaking clearly the significance of this. Life and blood go together. 
So he wants people to understand, yes, there's a spiritual significance to this, but there's a practical significance as the basis of spiritual significance. So he's making it very clear. Now, this is even in reference to animals, isn't it? So it's not only human, but God is setting forward here a respect for animal blood as well. Remember, animals are also his creatures. It's wrong of us to think, though we believe that God created uh, mankind separate from the creatures. We do not accept that we are involved. Uh, we are created specially according to God's revelation in Genesis. But we still see that he loves his other creatures, that the other things that he has made, living creatures, and they are to be treated with respect. So even the blood of wild animals, we see, is to be poured out on the ground uncovered, right? In verse, in verse 13. So there's a distinction here. You have the sacrificial animals, and those are particularly what were referenced in the, in the first nine verses of this chapter. The sacrificial animals, that blood really belonged to God in sacred in a way that it was to be brought specifically to the altar. But then God also indicates provision for people to kill other animals for food. And they're not to offer those things up to demons and to avoid any temptation for that. Even here, he's saying that blood that is shed by that animal is to be poured out on the ground and covered up with soil. That kind of ruins it for any other purpose. So there again is the sanctity of the blood and the protection of idolatry for the misuse of blood because it is significant in God's economy. We see even the handling and consuming of animals not properly drained uh, made an individual ceremonially unclean in verses 15 and 16, right? So the situation here is that if the animal was not slain by a person, then there wouldn't have been opportunity for them to properly drain the blood out onto the ground, that sort of thing. So if they come upon the animal, the blood, and I know some of you, if you're the squeamish people, you really have to keep it down this morning, right? But the blood would be coagulated in the body, so it can't just be poured out. And so even here uh, and elsewhere now, we have back in, in uh, Exodus as, and repeated in Deuteronomy, really God told the people of Israel not to eat these animals. If they die of other causes, you know, like disease or something like that, or if they're torn by another animal, if they're killed by another animal, they're not to eat them. And so uh, it's even a little bit tricky, and you know, different scholars wonder, you know, well, why does God mention that here? Perhaps if it's inadvertent or something like that, if they find out later that, oh, <laughs> the steak that you just fed me was what? <laughs> it was found on road dead? Oh. Um, but whatever the situation may be, if they find themselves guilty of eating an animal you know, of that sort, then still they, are, they have to do what they can to cleanse themselves. They have to cleanse, bathe, wash their clothes. They're considered ceremonially unclean. They don't. So there's a high regard for this. We see that the blood of the sacrificial animals was given also. Here's the second reason, number two. Why no one in Israel's company was to consume. Two reasons. Blood is vital to life, considered sacred by God as a symbol of life, and the blood of sacrificial animals. See that there in the second part of 11. Right? The first part, he says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and, he says, I have given it, for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So there's the clearly atonement. Remember, atonement is covering for guilt. And so he's saying, I have given the blood of these sacrificial animals because 
That is what's required for the covering of sin guilt. And and it's not the blood as though there's something magical about that fluid other than what God has already made clear. That's the source of life, but that's it. It's that life has to be sacrificed in order for sin to be atoned, in order for guilt to be covered. But God wants people to understand the seriousness Shedding of because this is the only way a person's sin covered over. That is consistent with points being made in verses three to six passages. Well, B, second big point, uh, a sub point here, is that disregard for God's ordinance regarding blood. Incurred God's condemnation. See these serious warnings. Now, God declared that he would issue judgment personally. Second part of verse 10, where I said, I will set my face against that person. There are other places where it says this person should be cast out, this person should be cut off, and so on. But here God says, for the misuse of blood, for the mishandling of blood, especially the sacrificial blood, you consume this, then you are robbing me. You are taking for yourself, essentially he's saying through these passages, you are taking for yourself something that is mine. God considers himself personally robbed. So he says, I will set my face against that person who, and will cut him off from among his people, immediately following it with the explanation that atonement is, that is atonement is the gift that he gives given and received only by the shedding of blood. We also see that God demonstrates the value he assigns to all life in verse 11, and that he, oh, I wanted to point out the other place uh, where God says also at the end of verse 16, he says, he shall bear his iniquity. So there again, there's that judgment. Not regard God's judgment. Verse 14, the life of every creature is in its blood. Blood is its life. Therefore, I have said, you shall not eat of the blood of the creature. Very definite. It was very clear for the people of Israel. It was not to be consumed. It's sacred. It's special and it's holy. Life is sacred. Life requires blood. Life must be sacrificed. Blood shed in order for sin to be. But the New Testament there's some good news in it because we can see that there is blood that sanctifies them. There is sanctity of blood for the Old Testament Israelites so that they would see and understand that it is blood of the ultimate sacrifice that sanctifies them. And that's true for us as well. We see that the atoning blood sacrifice of Jesus superseded the Old Testament sacrificial sacrificial system. Now, these are the passages that I love the most. So you're going to have to read with me. Please come here with me as we see the amazing, beautiful accomplishments of the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus predicted this just before his sacrifice, on the night of his sacrifice, as he gathered together with his disciples. You see in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, just a little snippet from the passage, but this is the observation of communion, right? And, and again, why it's so important to us. As he took the cup, when he had given thanks, 
he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of Jesus takes the sanctity of blood and elevates his own sacrifice. Say, this is the sacrifice. We'll take care of what all those others could only do temporarily. This is a new covenant. That was the old covenant. This is the new covenant, my own blood. Romans chapter 3. This is probably my, a part of one of my, probably my favorite passage of all. Romans chapter 3. I would normally start in verse 21, but to the point here, verse 23 through 26. Many of you know this first verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Establishes universal guilt. There's not a one of us that can claim to be worthy before all have sinned. But we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We already sang about this morning. Whom, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. How? By his blood. That's right. To be received by faith. So it's his sacrifice, our response of faith. God's the one who provided the solution. We offended him by sin, all humankind. That's established, right? All guilty. We've all offended God. Now God has reached out to provide a way to correct this problem in a way that none of it, we can't solve this problem from. We're just all guilty. So he extends this amazing plan where Jesus Christ, Son of God, comes and experiences life in this fallen sinful world, though he is the prince of life. He became our ransom. He humbled himself, even to the point of the cross, death on the cross for us. And that sacrifice, that shedding of his blood, was the propitiation for our sins. Remember the meaning of the word propitiation. And you know, the simplest one-word definition. Say it again. Satisfaction. God looked on him, pardons me. Is satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ's blood. Now, all those others had to be done over and over again, and we'll see that in another passage here. That had to be repeated. Christ sacrifice. God looked at that sacrifice, the shedding of that blood, satisfied, propitiation. That settles it. That covers it. Sheep and goats and bulls are not equal to people. They're not the same. We are created in God's image. We are unique from the creatures. And so it's because of that that none of those sacrifices could really make adequate covering and adequate atonement. And so that's what we see in this passage here in Romans 23 as we continue. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Nothing we can do otherwise to attain it for ourselves. We cannot earn it. We cannot contribute to it. We cannot add. We cannot say we'll split the bill. We just have to accept it by faith. But he goes on to explain why. This was to show God's righteousness, right? God's justice, as we talked about earlier and sang about. is to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He, he gave these people mercy throughout this sacrificial system in the Old Testament. 
though that blood covering was not really adequate, he passed over, he withheld judgment when they obeyed his system, but it was never a solution, right? So it says, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wonderful. There was this temporary Band-Aid solution in the Old Testament. It was horrible in that sense that it, the, the bloodshedding pointed out the severity of sin and its consequences. But now God puts forward his own solution through the perfect sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, so that he can demonstrate that he is truly righteous and just when he forgives sinners. Because now, price, the penalty for sin, has been paid once for all in full through Jesus Christ. So he can be just. He can judge sin because he has judged sin completely and appropriately through the sacrifice of Christ. And having been a just judge by pouring his wrath on Jesus Christ for all of sin, now when a person puts their faith in him, he can say, you does that. He is still just while he justifies that. I consider you not guilty because the debt has been paid. Guilt has been covered by an adequate, fully adequate sacrifice. So the heaven's peace, perfect justice, kissing a guilty wound. The atoning blood sacrifice of Jesus is, as I've said, and this is the second point there, sufficient for all who accept. Superseded the Old Testament's sacrificial system, and it is sufficient for all who accept it. A person does not have to wonder, and, and it's, it's amazing that people still do when this has been revealed to us, but a person does not have to wonder is it possible, might I, may I, could I possibly end up in heaven someday? There is a way to know for sure, and it has nothing to do with how good you might be or not be. It is all the value of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is sufficient for all who receive it. That was already expressed in Romans chapter 3 in that passage, but let's also look at Hebrews chapter 9. Again, if you're Looking there, I hope you will. There's a few verses here, so you can look in your own copy. Good. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. I've mentioned before, the book of Hebrews is just the greatest companion to the books of Exodus and Leviticus, really the whole Pentateuch, the, whole, the, the books of the law, the five books of the Bible. The, the book of Hebrews interprets that for us, the significance of all of that for New Testament believers. Demonstrates how all of those things were really a foreshadowing and a, and, a, and a pointing forward to Jesus Christ and his ministry. We see that in Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. It's jumping into a bigger passage, so it begins with a but. But it says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Again, the new covenant, the coming of a new covenant is implied there. 
Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. That's the same word as for tabernacle, right? So we're talking about the new tabernacle. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Get that? That Jesus has passed into the heavenly holy places, that perfect tent. The tabernacle, remember, was just a model. It was just kind of an earthly scale model of the realities of heaven. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, now Jesus, through his sacrifice, his death and ascension, he has entered into the ultimate holy place as the perfect high priest who can stand there and invite us in. Put our trust in him. So he is there. He's entered, not like the high priest when we just studied about the Day of Atonement, the high priest himself, the highest in the order, had to offer up sacrifices for his own sin, remember? Before he could begin to offer up sacrifices for the people. Before he could enter into the Holy of Holies. He had to offer up sacrifices and cleanse himself, change his clothes, wash his clothes, all of these things, just before he could enter in himself into the holy place. And he had to bring with him the sacrificial blood of a bull and a goat. So here we see the author of Hebrews saying, look how different it is. Jesus, verse 12, entered once for all, the final entry into the holy places, not by the means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And in so doing, he has secured an eternal redemption. The once and for allness of this, the, the ultimateness of this, the completion, the fulfillment is just astounding if you think about it. Or in verse 13, it goes on to say, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, remember all those things we detailed before, if those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works, serve the living God. In other words, Christ's sacrifice doesn't just make us ceremonially clean, not just a cleansing of the flesh, referring to in the Old Testament system, but now he makes our souls clean, our conscience clean. We can know that we can approach the throne of God without fear because of what Christ's sacrifice has that washes not just the body, but the very conscience of the people who put their trust in him. Well, let's just consider these couple of things. There are a couple more passages here that I want to read. I am moving into the, into the kind of two big groups of thoughts for us to consider. One is for the person who has not yet accepted Christ. The other is for the anyone who has not yet accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf very seriously sacrifice offered. We continue a little further in this same chapter in Hebrews chapter nine, 
verses 22 through 28, we see some sobering truths here along with the glorious truths. Hebrews 9.22, it says, Indeed, under the law, referring to that old sacrificial system, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. Remember that, right? Everything got sprinkled. All the, all the furniture, the, the bronze altar, the laver, the curtains, everything. Okay? All purified ceremonially with blood. And without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Translation might say remission of sins. My idea. There's no going away of the guilt of sin without the shedding of blood. That affirms what we see in the Leviticus passage and what we've seen already in the New Testament. So consider that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if you have not had the right blood sacrifice offered up for you in the right way, in the way that God accepts, then you stand guilty before God, your sins are going nowhere, you bear them on yourself, just as he says at the end of that passage in Leviticus, they will bear their iniquity. That means it's still on you. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, the Old Testament being the copies, the model, that it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Ultimate high priest. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed, get this, just as it is appointed for man to die once, something no one can escape. And after that comes judgment, very serious warning. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We have that hope. We our trust in Christ. No, we will. But consider the warning. You who have not accepted Christ yet, consider what it says. It is appointed for man to die once. Interesting that we don't connect the dots sometimes in our in our thinking, in our speech. When someone says, you know, oh, so and so is dying, right? And that's a concern, of course, because experience loss, and we grieve over that. But if we're honest, we can say that about every single one of us. We are all dying. Just a matter of time. So it's a sobering truth. Nobody escapes this. We feel sometimes so invincible, so autonomous. You know, this is my life. I'll leave it, I'll live it the way I want to. I'm not going to have some heavenly phantom up there telling me what to do. I'm not going to have some traditional old religious system telling me what to do. Okay, fine, but you will die someday and you will face the consequences of your decisions. 
Now, if I'm, if I'm wrong, if what the atheists say and there's just a nothingness after this, well, I've at least lived a life of purpose and peace and hope and confidence and joy. If I'm wrong, there's no loss for me. But if I'm right, you're a person out there who rejects the offer of what God gives to you through Jesus Christ. You're wrong. As it says here, everyone thy one after that. Now these are harsh words. That's a harsh reality. God is good. God is gracious. He has done everything possible to make it so that no one has to face that judgment in a guilty state. He's made it possible to be received. And it's to be received only by faith. You have to do nothing. You don't have to crawl on your knees for miles and go to some particular cathedral somewhere and bow and scrape and, and make you know, gifts of money and gifts of sacrifices or anything like that. You just have to say, thank you, God. I accept the sacrifice of Christ on my life. One last passage, and this is for us to celebrate, we who have put our faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. blood of Jesus has purchased great standing for us as believers. We are so privileged. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father. This is a doxology, right? This is, a, this is kind of an expression of praise and giving. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Isn't that thrilling? All the privileges of heaven. It's as though you found out one day on this earth, as though someone came to you someday and said, there's a big secret in your life no one's ever told you. I'm breaking the news to you today. You are actually the crowned prince or princess by rights of a great amazing nation in some other part of the world. You were adopted as a baby and... And this was kept from you for all these various political reasons and everything, but now there's no one else to ascend the throne. It's you. You are now to come into all these wealth and riches and, you know, the palace is yours and the entourage is yours and all the privileges are yours. And this is all. You haven't realized them yet, but you can now. Well, this goes far beyond that. This is what the, what the apostle is writing here is saying. It is by rights, all the riches of heaven are ours throne room of God will be open to us for free access. All the beautiful things that are described in heaven and in, in Revelation, we get to be there someday and we'll belong there. Something that's being expressed here that's amazing. Could read this again, Ephesians chapter 1. Look at this. No wonder he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's already ours, yet to be fully realized where we can sense it. 
and all of these things. But this is already our standing. We are the rightful heirs of, of Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his own glorious grace, with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him, Christ, we have redemption. We've been bought through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, that's the atonement, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, the riches lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. It sounds like that Romans 3 passage, doesn't it? As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God set Jesus Christ at the center of his program for the redemption for people and ultimately for the whole sin-cursed universe. He brings all things together in Jesus. So if you have put your faith in your trust in Christ, I guarantee you haven't begun to, to contemplate, you haven't begun to grasp the position that is yours, the privileges that are yours, the glorious future that is yours. I think if we could have some, some perspective of that, we would probably view every part of our life in this world differently. If we, if we could somehow get a peek through the, you know, the crack of the doors <laughs> into heaven and the riches of heaven that are ours, of the, of the privileged position that is The things that worry us so much, the things that we become so obsessed with, if the light of heaven were shined on those things, I wonder if they would matter so much. The waves that we ride through this tempestuous life they might be more rippled than we tend to think. We think we're just being overwhelmed by the waves of this life, by the trials of this world. When in reality, we have this amazing standing in Jesus Christ that's already a reality someday we will experience there in heaven would just remind ourselves, would look into God's Word more regularly, read these, contemplate, would change our We don't need to be afraid. Of course, none of us wants to suffer physically in this. No one wants that. But whatever may come, we can remember temporary. And the King, our Father, is waiting to welcome Gloriously, his kingdom. That will last for you. So as Paul says, whatever happens here, Paul considered it this light, momentary. What did Paul call light, momentary affliction? Being beaten multiple times within an inch of his life, stoned to where they thought he was dead, 
locked up in the dungeons of places like Turkey, Asia Minor, in the first century AD. Can you imagine what those dungeons were like? These things, Paul says, light momentary. Light of what is to be heaven. Let us adopt that perspective. Let's remember the blood of Christ has been shed for us is so such a rich gift. It has achieved so much for us. We can live differently because our whole status before God has changed. Our eternity is set, and it's a good one. Great. So let's lean toward that in our life. And so when it comes to the decisions that we have to make tomorrow, whatever they may be, let's just ask God to shine a little light of heaven on that trouble, that worry. Be reminded the position we've given in Jesus. Eternity, whatever it is now, who give us the grace to man? Pray and ask him.